met, we will go till 5.15, yeah? And of course, if you have to leave at 5 o'clock, you can leave uh, uh, quietly. That's okay. But uh, is that going to be a problem? No, okay. So, um, the workshop itself is very, um, uh, you know, demonstration-oriented. And what I hope to be able to do is to do um, three demonstrations. Yeah. I don't know whether it would work out, but that's the idea. At least two demonstrations. I hope, hopefully three. Um, and I will teach as I go along, as I demonstrate. So it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a demonstration of a therapy session. You know, it, would be, it would be a demonstration. So, and I educate clients a lot when I treat them. So um, it wouldn't be very different. So, but it does make it look um, different because it's a demonstration. Yeah, so. Now, the, um, to, to, to get to the um, uh, introduction quickly and uh, overview of what I have in mind, uh, I'll spend some time on it. Yeah? Um, this whole idea of integral somatic psychotherapy <laughs> came about in my thinking um, about how to bring um, three dimensions that are often overlooked in psychotherapy um, in a simple way into any psychological work. Yeah? The, dim- the first dimension is the body. Right? The body. The body, uh, by the body, you know, if you ask a Vedantin, he will say, which body? <laughs> the problem. So you have to separate it out. So the physical body, the physical body, you know, that science is preoccupied with, believes it to be the only body there is. Um, believes that all psychological experience is a, a byproduct of the body that's impermanent. And as it perishes, so does your sense of self along with all your experiences. That's the scientific view of things. Yeah? Now that is what is called the gross body in Vedanta. Mm-hmm. Vedanta is a, an Indian um, you know, spiritual philosophical system. Mm-hmm. And, and um, with multiple interpretations. Yeah? And um, so th- the body, when I say somatic, I'm referring to that body. Mm-hmm. That body. The scientific body. Mm. Yeah. If you actually look at the scientific body up close, it starts to look weird. Mm. <laughs> right? For example, mm, emotions that we, we work with regardless of what psychological work we do. Most of the time, it's about affect and affect intolerance. Capacity for affect tolerance. When you look closely at it, we find that emotions at times on a molecular level scientifically are, are show up in the brain first. And they then spread through the rest of the body very rapidly. You know, the work of Candace Pert, who's a molecular scientist. Um, 
Now, of course, she's hanging around with Deepak Chopra <laughs> because molecular science was not adequate to make sense of all the things that she ran into in, in, through a scientific inquiry. Um, then the emotions sometimes arise, seem to arise in the body. And then, of course, they spread rapidly to the brain, to the nervous system, physiology. Yeah. That's okay, because it's still happening in the body, right? And it actually um, supports both schools in the, um, in the, in the, in, in the discipline of uh, the physiology of emotions. One school says it arises in the body. Emotions arise in the body. Another school says, no, they arise in the brain. Right? Then, then we've, the finding is that sometimes they arise in both places at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right? With no time lag. How do you explain that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you explain that? Now, people could explain it. They say that the brain is everywhere. Mm-hmm. We're finding neuronal cells in the gut, in the heart. Therefore, perhaps there's a processing there. It just happens to be simultaneous. Huh? There are always all these explanations, and there's no way to really find out for sure in a hard scientific way because, you know, we find that matter, even matter beyond uh, at the subatomic level, becomes invisible. So we have to create, build these superconducting super colliders and spend tremendous energy to break down atoms. And then for the millionth of a second, observe something that comes up. Hopefully it's not because of a defective cable. Yeah? Uh, remember they found that they found particles traveling at the faster than light? And then they turned out that it was a computer problem. A wiring problem. So we backed, we're safe now. Particles cannot travel faster than, you know, at least observable particles cannot travel faster than the speed of light. So, so even there, you know, it's hard to measure beyond a certain level. Yeah. So the um, the um, so if they arise in both places at the same time, is there another explanation? The explanation Candice Pert came up with is that there's a field of information in and around the body that perhaps is the place where it originates. What is that field of information? Yeah. Now, according to science, if there's a field of information, it has to be generated by the physical body. Right? Yeah. But then how do you measure it? Because you can't measure beyond observe. No, not observe. Let me put it this way. You cannot observe through instruments. Nobody said that something cannot be observed through awareness. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other thing, right? It cannot be measured in, through instrumentation. So in any case, we are left with this idea. Some evidence, speculation, that there's something else that's contributing to what? To your psychological experience. It is not just your physical body. Yeah? It's not your perceptions that are registered through the physical uh, 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 physical uh, instruments of your senses, then the processed in the brain or the nervous system, and then 
made sense of and stored and relied upon and recalled and to create all these psychological experiences, the emotions, tendencies, actions and meanings and images. Yeah, all these things. Is there? Is there? Um, the all, it's not, it, could, it need not just be physical. And that idea has been around for a long time. It still persists. It's not only in, 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 in the East, but also in the West, everywhere. That, that there is, there is, that a psychological experience is not just a product of the physical body, which is, by physical body, I mean the brain and the, uh, and the rest of the body, the nervous system physiology and the rest of the physiology of the human being. It's not just there. There's something else contributing to experience. And we have so many reports of people what? Going outside of the body, not just in death, but in other instances. Or in meditation, spiritual practice, that they separate from the physical body. And their psychological life is intact. Everything is there. Thoughts are there. Feelings are there. Impulses are there to act. It's just that they cannot move the physical body to do it. Everything is intact. So, and, and, and then, what is this body then? You know, what, is, what is contributing to this? In meditation, it is not uncommon to arrive at a place where one observes oneself and one finds that the thinking is happening by itself. The emotions are happening by themselves. The impulses to act are coming by themselves. Yeah. How many of you have touched that? Yeah. Yeah. So there are all these experiences, like out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, meditative experiences, that, and, and then the, the theories in the East and the West about the possibility of an existence of... Um, Another body that survives, that even survives you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, goes from one life to the next. Taking the impressions of the previous lives into the current life. Yeah, contributing to your current psychological, as well as physical, manif- physical appearance. Yeah. And there is, if you look hard enough, I mean, if you don't have to look hard, if you look around, you find a lot of, Evidence for reincarnation, even scientific studies on, uh, that, that have cross-validated experiences of reincarn- reincarnation as recalled by children with people who live. Yeah, so there is another level of a being that cannot be what? Subject to scientific instrumentation. Mm-hmm. Cannot measure it. Mm-hmm. You cannot measure it. Mm-hmm. Now, there are now, for the lack of a better word, let's call that level. I mean, in the, in the East, we call it the subtle body. The gross body, yeah, and the subtle body. Sthula sarira and sushma sarira. This is the separation. Yeah, sthula, gross, subtle. So this subtle body, if you take that into account, the psychological theories has to have to start to take what take take a much longer time horizon 
you know. So it can't be just from your pre and perinatal trauma, who you are. Hmm? It can't be just from your uh, developmental trauma in the Oedipal stage, hmm? right? Or in the oral stage, hmm? or in the, in the teenage years of development. Hmm? Cannot be, no? It's, it's, it's a, something else is happening. And if you look at two children in the same household, hmm? Right? You don't have to go very far to look for evidence. Hmm? Convincing evidence to look at two children born in the same household to see how they're different they are. Hmm? Right? Yeah. How do you explain that? Hmm? How do you begin to explain that? Some, you know, I, I have a nephew uh, whose son, we look at him, and uh, all psychological Theories predict that it should be what? A mess now. Mm. <laughs> mm. Mm. He's not. Mm. You know, he's not, actually. Mm. The other day, he was, um, his mother found him packing a handkerchief. He's five years old. He's in preschool, no? kindergarten. He says, Srinath, why are you packing a handkerchief? And he says, Dichanya. Um, um, it has a cold. She needs to blow her nose. It's his girlfriend. Mm. So <laughs> he's in the Oedipal stage, you know. He's in love, mm. completely in love with her. Mm. So sweet. Mm. So <laughs> we cannot explain. Actually, if we look at him and we go, we can't explain who this person is. Mm. <laughs> you know, we can't explain who. I mean, just completely. You know. So, so there's something there. Mm. If you don't recognize that level of ourselves, you know, start to take that level into account, it's hard to make sense. Right? Forget the fact that we have a very limited notion of ourselves that is a problem spiritually. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about um, you know, psychological self-concept. You know, it's, a whole, it's very different when you think that I'm here, you know, as part of a long sequence of uh, uh, steps in my, in my evolution. It's very different. Then when I come in and I want to just look for an explanation in, in the history of my present life only. Yeah. Now, you can treat it as a metaphor for all the issues that you have to work on, but you cannot literally take it as having to do with just this current life. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. In any case, I think this idea I don't have to uh, belabor uh, uh, the point about because I think most of you are predisposed to that, you know. And when you come to a place like Spirit Rock, you know, I, you know there's a self-selection in terms of self-understanding mm, of the time horizon of your soul, mm, at least intuitively, yeah. So the question, then there are different levels of that, the subtle body. And I'm going to give you the, quickly, you know, talk about the, uh, the Vedantic, uh, you know, uh, um, subdivisions of the subtle body, but there are so many different divisions. But if you take the physical body, right? If you take the physical body, if you look at all the different ways we work with the physical body, um, uh, physically and psychologically, there are so many different approaches, right? Reichen. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about psychological work with the body. In the West, 
um, has, goes back to the work with, um, you know, uh, uh, the work of Reich on all the neo Reichian uh, traditions, you know, bioenergetics, radics. You have biodynamic analysis, you know, you have somatic experiencing. Right, sensory motor psychotherapy, and and you have so many different, uh, you know, the work of Stanley Kellerman, mm-hmm. yeah, in Berkeley, and th- there's so many different reports, you know, body mind centering, mm-hmm. right, Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen. There's so many, you know, the pesos, um, uh, you know, <coughs> what, what 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 is what, I forget his term, um, hmm? psychomotor. Psychomotor therapy or something like that? I forget the thing. So you have all these approaches. And you know what? If you actually talk to somebody who is in the approach, they will say it saved their life. Mm -hmm. That's true. And it has worked for them. So each approach, um, you know, core energetics is another one. So each of these approaches uh, that approach the body psychologically, have a take on it. That helps people. You know, it uh, tells us how complex the physical body itself, as it you know, the, the, as it relates to psychological experience. Yeah. Now, when you come to the subtle body, there are so many systems that work with the subtle body. You, know, you have, uh, I think, the one, the very popular one is 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 um, the work of Brennan, Barbara and Brennan. Yeah, but that's not the only one. There are so many different, and here things get even more what, um, more, uh, uh, what is it, hard to grasp, yeah, because we are not tuned into that realm, and perhaps there's so many variations. But there are all these people who do. There are people who work on the etheric body. You know? They actually work. They don't work on it psychologically. They view it psychologically, but they actually manipulate it. Balancing energies, taking things out, <laughs> putting things in, you know. And uh, you see that, you hear from people that, that, you know, they've really benefited from it. They have, you know. And most of us tend to poo-poo it. Because it's not within our field of expertise or you know, it's it's the science tends to push it away, and clearly, as with the body, or as with any psychological theory, even all energy theories can be you know dead wrong in certain instances. I mean, this is the uncertain world that we live in, right? So, now there's so many different variations. You know, the biodynamic, biodynamic craniosacral therapy that just works with the body. You know, it's not necessarily psychologically works a lot with the fluid body, which is a, a level of the energy body that's as very close to the physical body. Yeah. Now, there are chakra balancing theories around, um, around psychological work, you know, looking at different chakras, how the energy is balanced. Um, depending on that, you know, psychological interpretations are made, things are balanced, and, and people do well. So... So there are different things going on there too. There are so many theories. You know, you need multiple lifetimes, you know. Right? Then, 
before I go to the third level, awareness. So I'm talking about the gross body, the subtle body, and what? The, the, the awareness, you know, that's another level of a being. But before we go to that, I just want to say the following. There's so many different systems at the gross, at the subtle level, but even at the level of awareness, right? Mindfulness, let, let me say a little bit about it. You have mindfulness meditate, you know, you know, in a way, in Western psychology, the Eastern, especially the Buddhist meditation practices have been the way some people have gotten in touch with the body. You know, there are mindfulness practices that don't necessarily focus on the body. And they've been very beneficial. Right? And there are mindfulness practices like Vipassana that focus very much on the body. Right? If there's any... In fact, the, the uh, as I see it, the... Openness of Western psychology toward the body actually was paved by, you know, Buddhist meditation practices. Yeah, uh, I've seen some review article of all the studies that have been done there. Too. So there's that level there too. So I was thinking, you know, I've been teaching somatic experiencing for years. Uh, before that, I was trained in Reichen therapy, bioenergetics, and um, Biodynamic analysis and different body uh, psychotherapy systems, and, and I realized that you know I couldn't I couldn't possibly stay very immersed in one system. Yeah, I could I cannot stay in one valley for too long, mm-hmm. right? So I was thinking about how does one you know how does one bring the body in a simple way. In a simple way, that that different people who are trained in different non-body-oriented psychological systems, you know, psychoanalysis, analytical psychology, humanistic psychology, and then um, and then also body-oriented body-oriented people who are kind of trained in different valleys, you know, who believe that the, there's no life outside of that valley, right? There's no truth outside of the valley, right? Um, is there a way to, 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 to approach the body in a simple way without much theory that quickly gets down to here is where you find the armor and that means that, <laughs> right? Or you go into the body, you find a constriction, it's the freeze. It's trauma. You know, this kind of... the. the it's not the body that restricts your approach to it. It's the theory that you approach the body with that restricts the thing. <laughs> right? Is there a way to look at all these systems there and generalize and come up with certain simple principles which then can be used what? To approach the body, to integrate the body into psychological work without having to necessarily be deeply immersed in one theory or the other. It doesn't negate the theory, that, that at the same time doesn't negate the theory. It makes it relative. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And of course, we are generalizing on the basis of all the work that has been done before. Mm-hmm. Right? So that everything else can fit into it. Yeah. But it gives the people a free, certain flexible framework to what? Add more. Mm-hmm. So that, was my, that has been my uh, interest. And I think the, 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 the integral somatic psychotherapy has developed 
it's you know it's i think that it's going to be my life's life life's work really you know it's going to develop as i pay more attention to it teach it more practice it more and so on but that's the goal can i can we approach the body in a simple way so that without you know whether you have a body psychotherapy background or not how can you quickly you know bring it home into your practice into your psychological work so that not only can you make use of what it offers as a dimension of experience but also you're able to teach clients about it in a very simple way i i found it that i found that if you can teach people educate people about the relationship between the body and psychological experience then it's a lot easier to get them to sense it right and I, i'm not saying that sensing the body in an open ended way is not a good practice i'm not saying that at all but sometimes you know it does it it is without purpose and it can it can it can again it can become a certain it can become a way of um dissociating to right for example if i'm working doing emotional work and i need to create a capacity for a certain emotion if i start to focus on the physiology in relation to the emotion it's useful but if i start to focus on the physiology without letting go of the emotion then it becomes a dissociation you get to sense your body well but what about the emotion this you find a lot with the fear for example even the somatic experiencing circles you know that i teach fear you know it's very clear that fear has to be worked with if you're working with threat trauma is about threat and if you don't work with fear and create a certain capacity for the fear then what happens it remains in the unconscious ready to be triggered and and leading to a cascade of effects to one symptom or the other now you might doing by sensing the body create a lot of um different pathways of health in the nervous system but then the psyche always finds a new pathway of to toward this dysfunction yeah so it <clears throat> it goes to most of the problems you know we know psychologically you know this is a conventional wisdom in psychology is that when a person has a problem most of the time it has to do with what it's an affect problem something has happened or something is happening right and it's creating what certain affects emotions i'm going to use them interchangeably and if i cannot tolerate them right i cannot even make sense of them so to make sense of them i need to be able to tolerate them to some extent i need to first of all i need to generate them sometimes i don't even generate them i push them deep down into the unconscious i need to be able to generate them i need to be able to what make them conscious i need to be able to make sense of them i need to be able to act on them i need to be able to express them but the tolerance is a problem <laughs> yeah because emotions are by their very nature overwhelming in order to get your attention mm-hmm. otherwise we wouldn't care mm-hmm. right so and it will become more clear when we talk about the subtle body and where the emotions come from but at least let's talk about at the level of the physical body uh, 
So, so if this is the central problem, or at least an illustrative, it's, a, it's even though very often we work with cognition and behavior, etc., we work with other things too, social support and all that. It, not to diminish those things, but very often we work with a- affect, mm-hmm. yeah, whether it's in a relational context or not. So that seems to be a good place to start to enter the system. You know, let's look at psychological experiences of affect in relation to the body. And then in that context, how do we start to uh, use the basic principles of how the body responds, how the body is involved in generating these emotions, but also how, more importantly, defending against those emotions. And how does one, one uh, work with the defenses, access the emotions, support the emotions, you know, then it might be a very um, um, uh, very efficient way of getting uh, into the work. That's what I was thinking. The reason, you know, it's not that I don't want to use trauma, stress, or relational problems, etc., which we can see uh, all of that. But emotions being the primary um, component in psychological work, we thought we would start there, right? So, so... I know that I'm going up and down, but uh, let me, uh, you know, summarize from time to time to keep on track. Um, so, can we bring the body into psychological work? It doesn't matter what psychological work you do or psychological training you have had, mm-hmm. as long as you're doing psychological work. In a way that's simple, mm-hmm. not only for you, but also for what? For your clients. Now, in the same way, can we also bring what? The subtle body into the picture. If you bring the subtle body into the picture, what happens? If you keep track of it, your efficiency is going to what? Go up. Anytime you bring something into the picture that has not been brought into the picture, your efficiency is going to go up. Yeah? Like if people are not doing cognitive work, and if you bring cognition in, the efficiency is going to go up. Right now it's the body because it has been abandoned for so long. If you bring that into the picture, your efficiency is going to go up. If you can bring energy or the subtle body into the picture, then what? Your psychological work is going to go up. And a lot of people are trying to do that. Unfortunately, it remains in the fringe. Right? It remains in the fringe. Transpersonal psychologists have long what? Sought to integrate the subtle, at least some levels of the subtle body and uh, or the energy body and, you know, archetypal bodies, things like that. Or the pranic bodies and things like that. These are different levels of the subtle body. And they've gotten, you know, clinical efficiency. Um, and as I said, the medita- uh, mindful meditation practices have also been brought in, and they have also contributed significantly to what? Clinical efficiency. We know that, right? There are studies there. In fact, there are more scientific studies on mindfulness hmm? than on the subtle and the gross body, uh, their efficiency in clinical practice. If you look at, uh, if you go to the American Psychological Association, there are more studies there hmm, on mindfulness and its efficacy in psychological work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So can we bring these things together in a simple way? And so this is my goal for the rest of my life, you know, to flush this out, to write about it and to teach it. Yeah. Uh, and, and in a way not to lose anything that we have, we have, trained, we have trained in. You know, once I know that this is how the body organizes or creates emotions, that's, I, I'll give you, keep the example as emotions, creates emotions. Response to excessive, uh, uh, intolerable emotions shuts down. Then I can go to body dynamic analysis and say, what do you have to say about it? Or somatic experience and say, what do you have to specifically have to do about it? Or, or Reichen therapy and say, what do you have to say about it? Right? Then I can integrate them. Right? Without, um, you know, without um, uh, necessarily, you know, getting stuck in that valley. Now, the question was asked at the beginning of the day, and I might as well address it right away. Somatic work does not necessarily involve touch. Yeah, this is important. Because many people assume that if you do somatic work, you have to get down to your underwear (laughs) and go topless and scream or bend over backwards over a contraption called the horse so that your pelvic diaphragm can be open, right? And involves touch and holding. Yeah. The therapist lies next to you to bring up all your intimacy issues to process. <laughs> and, um, and if they don't go to jail, you get better. <laughs> so, so there are all these things floating around. All these notions, you know. All the training is done in the nude. Because I, when I did my... Um, training uh, in uh, 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 what is called body-mind integration with Reichen therapy as a major emphasis. The training was done in the nude at times. Mm. So it is to remove these inhibitions people have. No? I don't know what it did to people, but uh, probably made them more weird. Mm. The thing is, no, somatic work, somatic psychotherapy does not have to involve touch or nudity. Mm. It, and, and it can be done through awareness of the client. It can be done through the awareness of the therapist, right? Even when the, sometimes the client is not aware of their body. It can be done in the resonance, somatic resonance between people. These are some of the things that we can talk about. In the same way, the subtle body work does not, in, need, does not necessarily involve touch. It's not that things cannot be done with Tremendous things cannot, can, can, cannot be done with touch. Uh, if it's okay, then it's great. But if it's not there, let us not lose everything because we're concerned about the extreme. Mm. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of things that clients can do but through self-touch, mm. if you educate them. Mm. There's a lot of uh, you know, shin, shin, jin shin jitsu that's done through self-help mm. manuals. And people report tremendous progress. No? A lot of people do energy work through self-awareness, chakra balancing and things like that. And they get a lot of benefit out of that. So awareness is the biggest tool. <laughs> yeah? And we have found that through me- mindful meditation practices in psychological work. Self-touch, you combine that with self-touch by the client, teach them how to do it, then you can do a lot. 
And then you can help them through, through the resonance. You're sitting, you're touching them really, even when you're not touching them. Yeah, it can be done. So I just wanted to clear that right away so that people don't get into that groove and think this is all interesting, but you know, what am I going to do with it? I think that uh, body psychotherapy is moving in the direction now where mainstream folks find it find their interventions more well within the realm of their uh, frame of uh, practice. Mm-hmm. Whereas earlier it was very difficult to do that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, we will have time for questions. Do you have a question now? Or? I did. Yeah, just for the last point. So, so one aspect I'm hearing you. No, let's get you a mic so that we can get it on thing. Give me a second. Yeah. Yeah. So you is this on? And so in the in the framework of um, the last comment around touch and skin uh, presence. Uh, how do you fit in the nature of maternal-infant bonding and the skin physiology of parent-child yeah. and that aspect of resonance So, in, as a category to contend with? So certainly I'm agreeing with everything you're saying. Uh, from, my, from my particular work, doing trauma body work and also hands-on massage, yeah. okay, often that layer of reality is a, holds a lot of potential. It, it does. It, let me put it this way. It, it holds extra potential. <laughs> You can do more, sometimes you can do tremendous work with touch that you cannot do without touch. It's more efficient, right? What I'm saying is that the field is at a place where touch is still a problem. So, and somatic work is now confused with uh, touch. That is, somehow somatic work, it does involve touch. I'm saying that it doesn't have to involve touch. You can do a lot without touching your clients, Yeah? And if touch is necessary, you can get them to touch themselves. That's all I'm saying. Now, when you, if you start to touch people, it brings another level of possibility that you cannot have. But not, not all licensed categories are equally permissible of touch. Right? And touch can also create problems. <laughs> so there's the other problem, right? So, yeah. Yeah, okay. So what I'm saying that Okay, here is psychological work. Right? Psychological work. And we're talking about the body, the gross body. The subtle body. And then what? Awareness. Now, this is interesting. What, what the heck is this awareness? We can spend the rest of a lifetime on it. Okay? So, can we, can we use three, three, these three dimensions, find ways to use, bring these three dimensions in, to your psychological practice, work. Um, in such a way 
that's, it's easy for you to integrate it into your practice without having to change the nature of it. And it's easy for you to explain it to your clients. One of the things that has been my inquiry and that is the goal of integral somatic psychotherapy. And somatic, I put it in there. You know why? Because the soma is where we are, mm-hmm. grounded to, in this life. And if you cannot create a capacity there, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's actually the soma becomes a great container for experiences to transform experiences. It's like a cauldron. Mm-hmm. And if we, so we can use that. And if you're not using that, we have a, many, many problems. If you don't have tolerance, you know, affect tolerance for the good and bad in life. Equanimity, you know, the term used in Buddhist circles, comes through what? Being able to tolerate the opposite. It doesn't come from what? Dissociating from the opposites. Because I can withdraw my awareness to the subtle body. As when I float outside my body while my body is being tortured. It's a necessary thing to do. But it cannot become a lifestyle. What remains in the unconscious what is going to govern your life, right? So this somatic or the physical body is a great container to what? To use to what? To, to, to create a capacity for opposites in life. That opposites in life are there by now, you should know. Right? The early, early body oriented psychotherapist said, said, this is very fantasy. One fantasy is that you discharge all the negative affects, then what? Then you just have positive effects for the rest of your life. Yeah, no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> so, so we're going to, even when we work with the subtle body, right? even when we use the awareness, the goal will be to create a container for opposites in the, in the gross body, yeah? in the physical body. And that's what we're going to do. You know, we're going to demonstrate that. Um, so... Let me go one step further, and we have to have some idea of the subtle body, right? There are so many different theories out there. So I'm going to present to you something that you have seen a lot of, and something that I feel comfortable with, something that's part of my spiritual practice. Just to give you an overall quick idea, what is a subtle body? You know? um, Let me go here. And how, how does it relate to the gross body and awareness and so on? Let, let me look at that. Right? The one level of it, one level of it is the energy body, what they call um, the pranic body. The other, the other level of it is the mental body. Now, this word mental is a bit of a problem. 
mind in the East means not just thoughts. It also means what? Feelings. It also means action tendencies. Right? It's all part of the mind. The mind in the East is not just thinking, not just cognition. It's not just perception. It's not just evaluation. It's not just emotional response. Right? It's not just wanting to do something or not wanting to do something. The likes and dislikes. They're all part of the mental body. So if you think about the subtle, the energy body and the physical body, right? They become what? They're essentially instruments for carrying out these tendencies. Yeah. Yeah. You can see that it's, it's the, the soul is out of the body. It, everything is intact. I have thoughts, feelings, perceptions, evaluations, wanting to do something, not wanting to do something, liking something, not liking something. It's all intact. Your physical body is down there. And they're trying to revive it. Right? And you come right back. It's right there. So that would be what? The mental body. And perhaps the energy body. Some level of the energy body is shed. If you read about it. And some level of the energy body is there. Because there has to be motive force for the mental body. Right? There has to be motive force. And then when you add the physical body, more energy to it, more physical body to it, here you are embodied. What is embodied? The mental body is embodied. So if you think about it, it's thoughts, perceptions, perceptions, evaluation, feelings, you know, action tendencies to do this or not to not do that. Likes and dislikes, all of these things are there in, the, in this body. Then it doesn't surprise you that sometimes what? You feel it here? Sometimes you feel it here, right? Sometimes it's in both places at the same time. Yeah? And the reason why it's important to become aware of this body is, is the more aware you can become of a body, what? The more control what? the more control you have over it. Yeah. So sometimes when I'm tracking emotions, sometimes I'm tracking them at that level, really. You know? Because if I think that it's only in my brain, <laughs> if it's only in my body, it's created here through perception, evaluation of the physical brain, then what happens to my awareness? It gets very identified and limited to the value of the physical body. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right? If I think it's only in that room, I'm going to be searching only in that room. I don't know that there are other rooms I will not look. Yeah? So if you go further, further, mental body itself is broken into. It's the part of the mental body, but it's sometimes broken into the body of intellect, intellectual body. Mm Now, of course, the terms can be confusing. What it means is this. You've heard that this ego concept is called, sometimes called the I thought. The I thought. The part of the 
Damasio, if you look at Damasio, Antonio Damasio, he says, the sense of I, he says, is nothing but an artificial creation of the humming of the brain. Right? It keeps humming, right? It's like you hear traffic of a freeway in the distance. It sounds like one noise. There's something moving. That's what it is, the sense of I in the brain. He has scientific evidence for that. And he says, then how this I becomes conscious, he doesn't know. But there must be something else in the brain that they can find sooner or later. Mm-hmm. That will explain it. Good luck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the thing is, in the East, it is said, this I, the sense of I, is nothing but, it's, it's, the const, it's, it's, the, it's created by the constant shifting of what? The mental processes. If you want to think about it. The word of mental traffic. Mm-hmm. That seems to, because the brain is trying to, the psyche, the mental body is also trying to look for what? Some, like a scientist, it's trying to look for some unifying principle and it finds it in this, the word of the mental thing. In meditation, the goal is what? To what? To make it so quiet that cloud dissolves. Then you find what? What do you find? Then. Pure awareness. Right? But there is this place. In the, in the, even in the subtle body. I mean, just because I leave my physical body, one way or the other, I become disidentified with the physical body and the physical brain and so on, means that it's done. I still am attached to the subtle body. Mm-hmm. Right? Thinking what? I am the subtle body. I am the subtle body. I go from one life to the next. You know, I died and I came back. You know, there is that identification there. And the process is there. And that process is, that, that the process by which the subtle body thinks that it's an entity, <laughs> you know, is attributed to a portion of the mental body called the intellectual body. It's the body of intellect, right? Now, if that is there another body beyond that? Do you know which body that is? You've all seen, you, you all, uh, seen Red Deepak Chopra, right? He uses the same model. Hmm? What is it? It's, it's called the causal body. Hmm? So these are the levels of the subtle body. Hmm? This is called... This is called the pranic body in, in, in India. The body of prana. Mm. Prana, energy. Mm. It doesn't necessarily have psychological... It's not psychological. The psycho, it's, it gets, becomes psychological by associating itself what? With the mental and the intellectual body. Mm. Then you have the causal body. The causal body, it's, interestingly, it's also called what? The body of bliss. Mm. This is the body that we retire to in deep sleep when we are not dreaming. This is as close to you can get to enlightenment in your daily life, deep sleep, without dream life. What is this? 
this body is defined as the only thing between you <laughs> and pure awareness. Like, this is the only thing between you and the sun. That is, it's like a cloud before the sun. As long as it is there, you think that you're the cloud. It's the body of ignorance. Primal ignorance. It's the body on which your entire history is built. Right? That is the ontological basis of your ignorance as a limited being. When it dissolves, what happens? You find yourself to be the sun. The pure awareness, it's pervading everything. So that is called the causal body. In it is latent. In the causal body are latent all of these bodies. Latent. Then as you go through lives, it's like a platform on which you add everything and so on. Now, we are not going to be using necessarily in integral somatic psychotherapy all these levels because the idea is not to teach you Vedanta. (laughs) Right, there are much better teachers out there. Mm-hmm. But I just wanted to give you a range of what is possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah? At least I have to give you an idea of the subtle body and different levels of it from some perspective. Otherwise, it's just a subtle body. You know? We might end up working with just this body. Mm-hmm. It's easier to do with awareness. Mm-hmm. Or the mental body. Mm-hmm. Yeah? But these are levels of steps toward enlightenment. So when the causal body, you know, when the awareness is not stuck with the physical body, not stuck with the mental body, not stuck with that aspect of the mental body called the intellectual body, right? Then it is not stuck in the causal body, the body of bliss. Then there is this aware, the awareness becomes what? The awareness becomes pure awareness. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, this awareness is what? This awareness is what? Identified with one of the limiting bodies, down to the physical body, down to what? This life, down to this trauma, down to this limitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Now, in Vedanta, you will never be satisfied in a permanent way unless what? You reach this level. There's no way. It's not possible. You know, the only way of inherent completeness and satisfaction is going to be in the journey toward and the arrival at a place where you know yourself to be this not any of these things. You can say I'm also that, but when you get here, that becomes questionable. You know, the idea that I also go about my life enjoying things, it's nice. I can also be enlightened is a bit, bit of a moot quest. It's a bit suspicious in Vedanta. Yeah? If you get to this level, then everything else that happens in your life will be just according to whatever. Yeah. 
but it's not going to perturb you that much. That's the whole idea. Right? But you know what? That's a long way. <laughs> and nobody really knows how to get there. So that's not what we're going to be doing because we are going to be looking at clients who come into the room, right? And say, I have a heartbreak. I cannot get over. I have a heartbreak, I cannot get over. Right? Or, I cannot sleep. I cannot remain close to my partner. Yeah. And I cannot move, I cannot work. I do not have the motivation to work. These are the problems that people are going to coming, people are coming to us with, right? And they're going to be also saying, please take these things away from us. <laughs> right? They're going to say, or they come in and say, I have attachment issues. I want to work through this trauma. Right? Or I have migraine. Mm. I have irritable bowel syndrome. Mm. I have autoimmune disorder, nobody they, I but it's diagnosed not treatable. Mm. It has it has not responded. Right? These are the things that people are going to come come to us with. So this is not going to sell. Mm. Right? We have to meet the soul where it is at. Now, you might get to this place and say, this is all nonsense. I don't want to do the work. That's fine. Right? But as long as we are, you know, if it is your mission, even if you get there, and if it is your life, if, if it is your, you know, in, in Vedanta, they say it's your prarabdha karma, uh, prarabdha karma, you know, which is the karma of the remaining life. <laughs> To educate people, to cut, you know, to, to treat people, to help people, then you do that, no? So, so when people come to us with these things, so these problems that I mentioned, no? how do we then use these concepts? Finding simple ways to do it. So let me start with the physical body, and let me check the time. Yeah, let me start with the physical body. And, and, and talk about um, the physical body generates psychological experience, especially emotions. Right? Whether the emotions are created in the body or the brain, they what? Cascade throughout the physiology very quickly. Right? Very quickly. I think that Candace Pert uses the example of shame in the, in the documentary, What the Bleep Do We Know? Hmm? Yeah. It affects it. I mean, the more important the emotion, the more impactful, pleasurable, painful, the more orga- more of the organism this is communicated to, right? So the whole organism can respond to it. It makes sense. We are just 50, 50 million, I don't know, 50 trillion cells. I don't know how many. 50 billion cells is the count I heard. Yeah. Now, so this generates, right? This generates. I generate 
the emotion. So I'm going to keep emotion as the example for now. Hmm? Yeah. Or the like and the dislike emotion again. Now, or the tendency to do, want to do this, I can't control, you know, including addictive tendencies. Hmm? Addiction can be what? To do something or not to do something too, hmm? right? Anorexia versus, you know, excess weight disorder. Hmm? So, when I generate this unbearable or overwhelming positive or negative emotions, you know, in the physiology, we will see in the brain or the body and then the whole organism as it gets involved. You know what can happen? Now, if I cannot, what makes, what makes it bearable? What would make it bearable? Let's look at that. If I have an emotion like that. There's a fear. Or a sorrow, great sorrow. Mm. You know, we just returned from Sri Lanka, working with people in the war zone who lost their children, or people who were tortured. Mm. Right? People who saw bodies, you know, of mothers and children clinging to their breasts, mothers dead. I mean, these are images are hard to over, and they they just want to die. They don't want to live anymore. Mm. Even though it didn't happen to them, they saw that. These are unbearable, unbearable emotions. Now, what happens when these emotions become unbearable? What, how can I bear them? How can I remain conscious of them? How can I support them? How can I make sense of them? How can I use them in some way? Right? What conditions do I need? What kind of support do I need? One, what? What do I need? I need support of other people. I need the support of other people. There's no way around it. Forget it. No way around it. You can't do it without other people. We designed that way. Blame God. <laughs> There's no way. There. That's why you go to therapy. Otherwise, you'll do it at home. Yeah. Self-help books take you to a certain point. But then what? You need another body. Yeah. Now, if I have that over time, then what happens? I create an interject. A part of me I take from the outside, right? I create an image of the support. So therefore, sometimes I'm able to what? Keep the emotions, tolerate them, make sense of them, act on them, even when there is no outside support. Because I have a strong inner support core that I built over internalizing external support over time. So I need what? Now, does it mean that if I have a great deal of um, outer sub- inner support, then the rest of, for the rest of my life I'm free? No, I'm not. <laughs> Part of that inner support is the knowledge that at times I need outer support. <laughs> which is pretty much the whole time. Hmm? <laughs> you have emotions, you tell me. Hmm? Right? There's no way. I mean, we're limited. That's the beauty of it. Hmm? It keeps us in business, actually. So. <laughs> There's no way. I mean, my experience, at least. 
there's no way I get to a point where I don't need the support of others. Sooner or later, which is sooner than later. If I come to accept that, then I'm a much better emotion uh, person emotionally. Yeah? Then I, I get support from the outside, I use the support on the inside, then what? I can tolerate it. But even then, you know what happens? Even, even when I have the best of support on the outside and the history of support that I've internalized on the inside, it's still intolerable. You lose a child. Yeah. You lose a child. That's all it takes. Yeah. How many of you were so affected by Newton? I mean, I, I couldn't. I was disturbed for a whole month. The new, the the twenty seven, the children, Newton, Newton, Connecticut. You know that thing. It's like that became unbearable. Somebody else's tragedy became unbearable to you, and it uh, it took shook me for a month. I mean, just the way it is. You know, I talked about it. I wrote about it. I didn't want to say, "Hey, why am I feeling this way?" Well, maybe I have an unresolved trauma that I haven't worked through. That's also part of the fantasy. That somehow I can fix it. No, we just need it. Now, what happens is that the physiology does shut down. It does become unbearable, even in the best of circumstances. And what? It does, it can shut down. It can get dysregulated. It can get what? Extremely stressed. This is not just trauma that is happening that is severe of the scale of Newton, Connecticut. This is happening to us all the time. right? And it is not only because of some severe trauma that has happened to you. It's because it, it adds to it. It adds to it. But is, is it, I mean, tell me, you've you all been in your practice for how long? 30, 40 years? Right? What have you seen? Does it make sense? Makes sense. Because the physiology, emotions by their very nature, in order to compel attention, are overwhelming. <clears throat> and they're driving home the psychological significance of something that has happened to you. Why should you be able to work it through just like that? Right? So we do get overwhelmed. We do get dysregulated. We get stressed to the point of post-traumatic stress disorder. And it doesn't have to be with something so big, even though it's sexy to believe that it is so. It makes my history look, what, <coughs> more interesting. Right? It makes me more of a victim. It's more interesting. But affect tolerance is an everyday problem. Not to minimize all the big things that can happen. So let me uh, you know, give you a way to put all these things together on the on the level of emotions. How how are you doing? Are you, are you doing okay? Are you doing okay? Is there enough air here in the room, or do you need the windows to be opened a little bit momentarily to get some oxygen in, and then we close it? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. What I want to do is to present you
present you with um, a framework of approaching emotions yeah, in relation to the body. And then I can do a demo. Right? And then in that context, we can look at the physical body and the subtle body and so on. Yeah? Um, And then we'll come back. Then we'll come back to the subtle body and the pure awareness a little more as we go along. But let's look at the body in relation to the um, the emotions in relation to the physical body first. And we don't care whether they come from the subtle level, hmm? the mental body, right? Whether they occur in the physical body in the brain, whether they happen in the physical body, the um, the in the physical body in the in the rest of the. You know, outside of the nervous system physiology, we don't care. We are trying to, how does it, how do you work with it in the physical body? That's what we're going to be looking at. So let's look at a framework for emotions, the different levels of emotions. You can call them aspects of emotions. Levels of emotions, yeah. And I'm going to use some terms I've borrowed from the physiology of emotions literature, and some terms I'm going to use, you know, add to it, you know. So just a simple clinical framework. The first level is primary emotions. What are primary emotions? There's actually a history of research on primary emotions. The idea is that there are certain emotions, um, affects, feelings. I'm going to change, use them interchangeably. I'm not going to make a distinction. People, Different people do that in the emotions literature, but I'm going to be using them interchangeably. The, emo- the, the idea that they're like basic colors of the color spec, there are certain emotions, um, basic emotions, primary emotions, now, once you identified them, then you can actually look at any emotional experience and look, look at them as components of these primary emotions. So essentially, the basic emotions make up all of your emotional experiences. You will see that it runs into problems very quickly. Okay? But let's look at them, because they're very important emotions. One list has what? Happiness, sadness, shame, Guilt, anger, fear. This is one list. One list has happiness, sadness, anger, fear, disgust, and surprise. Hmm? Right? This is how it is. So, if you take an emotion like love, you should be able to... Perhaps it's happiness and surprise. Hmm? Surprise comes later. <laughs> so you get the idea. This is an academic exercise. It has its, its guilt. They say is not a primary emotion. It's disgust. It's it's shame and and fear. Is guilt. Yeah, this is a whole tradition, and and it's like so many people have been tenured at universities on the basis of this research. <laughs> yeah. But important because these. 
these are primary emotions. You know, so. Now, how do you account, for, what is loneliness? To blow a hole into this framework, idea that you can get, arrive at every emotion by combination of these emotions. What about um, loneliness? Sadness? And fear? For some people, fear. Some people, perhaps, it's relief. Hmm? (laughs) But relief is a bodily... What I'm trying to say is that loneliness is there's a lack of something. That lack is not accounted by any of the primary emotions. It's a physical lack. Emptiness. You come into the house, you say the house feels empty without you. The house isn't empty. The house is always like that. <laughs> You're projecting the sense, physical sense of emptiness into the house. Now, having said that, there's also some truth to the perception that's empty. The physical, the body and the energy body of the person is not there. Right? So you cannot completely dismiss it as non-objective. Yeah. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So give it a mic. And let me repeat it. So you can even feel lonely when you're full, they're full of people. Yeah, that's true. It's a sense of what I'm trying to say. It's, a, it's, it's what? It's, it's, a, it's a physical sensation that is what? Very meaningful, that qualifies as an emotion. Right? I feel empty. I feel empty. You can feel this emptiness when the, you know, Sometimes you feel this emptiness when you have not had enough content. Uh, you know, you go to a workshop <laughs> and you say, you left what? Empty. Even though you were not filled up here, it feels empty, right? Or you say, enough now. I'm full. It's not eating. You've had enough. And it feels full throughout the body. So these are physical sensations that make psychological sense. Okay? There is a term for it in psychoanalysis. You know, these are called sensory motor emotions. Okay? I'm going to sensory motor emotions. Mm-hmm. Sensory motor emotions. Hold it. I'm going to go through it and then get to you. Hmm? Now, I'm going to call them tertiary emotions. Okay? Tertiary. I'm going to call it tertiary, which means that there's a secondary, no? We'll get to it. Yeah. So many of our experiences, when I see somebody and I have a response of pleasure to that person. There is happiness there, right? But what is dominant in that? Physical sensation of pleasure as opposed to pain. Hmm? When I lose somebody, I might feel sad, which I can recognize as a primary emotion, but what am I feeling? Also, hurt. That's unbearable and raw. Hmm? Right? And what else? Lack of energy. Loss leads to what? Less motivation to live or to do something. 
It's also part of the experience of loss, yeah, which is again physical. So what happens is that very quickly you find that emotional experiences are what? You can clearly identify them as primary emotions, right? Or what? Very often these are bodily states, physiological states that make what? Perfect sense relative to the situation. They qualify as emotion and it has been recognized. And people in body psychotherapy systems work with it a lot. We don't, in psychology, it's not worked with or made conscious a lot because what? Because why? The body was not so important. The body was not so important. Not that these emotions were not being generated. As they hit the body, the questioning is, are you sad? The questioning is along those lines, without reference to the rest of the bodily experience. So as a consequence, you don't feel, you know, we, we don't grasp all of the emotional experiences. Right? And there's a reason for that too. Uh, that is, it's, the, the importance is, I, I will get, for self-regulation of the body, it's very important that when I'm, my heart is hurting, right, I'm, I'm experiencing a loss, I'm sad, and information is coming to the brain. This is scientific theory. Then I say, I'm only looking at sadness. Then I, what? I drop other levels of the grief, the loss. Then what happens? that level starts to go unconscious. I'm not even trying to support it or regulate it. It becomes a problem. So, so most of the emotional experiences I'm going to use the term secondary emotions. In the, in, in the, in the, um, in the literature on emotions Secondary emotions are combinations of primary emotions only, right? That we recognize. Sometimes I'm what? I'm hurt and I'm ang- I'm sad and I'm angry. Hmm? Yeah, you can see combinations. I'm angry and sad. You can see the combinations, right? But very often what? I have a level of emotion with it. I'm shaking. I'm shaking. I'm so shaken by what has happened. I cannot believe that he did this or she did that. I'm sad and angry and what? Agitated hmm? and shaking. Hmm? Yeah. They make sense, right? They make sense. But we kind of... Yeah. Now, we also know that primary emotions are also what? Generated physiologically. But it's not as though these emotions are not generated physiologically. They are also, they, everything is generated physiologically. In the brain or the body. Science. And then what? Spreads this way or that way very quickly. So everything is physiological. And at some point we will look at all the different ways in which the physiology generates emotions. But for now, let's take that for granted. You know, but through constriction, deconstriction, through arousal, through dysregulation, all of these things, by increasing the function of the heart, decreasing the function of the liver, we create these emotions, just like that. Mm-hmm. We will look at that a little later, because things get too complicated. Yeah? But for now, everything is physiological in origin, at the level of the physical body. 
Even if it's coming from a subtle body, the physical body is stimulated in the brain of the body. And then, boom, you have the crossover. So, secondary emotions, you can say, are combinations of these emotions or these emotions. They're just to have a complete kind of thing. Completeness. Now, here is the thing. These tertiary emotions, no? Sensory motor emotions, sometimes, I'm going to write them down and we'll talk about them. States of extreme dysregulation. States of dysregulation. I'm also going to put states of stress. I can put them as 3A because these are sub, let's say 3A and 3B. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm going to make the statement first and then have your experience validated. Sometimes a state of stress is an emotional emotional reaction to a situation. For example, you start planning your activity. You add one more activity, one more client, one more client, one more client, right? What happens? What do you start to feel in your body? You're not doing it. What happens? How do you know that you're overdoing it even before you start to do it? You have an emotional reaction, Right? You feel stressed, even thinking. You say, I even feel stressed thinking about it. So stress can be an emotional response. Yeah. In itself. In itself. Now, if I lose two children, I'm shook up. Right? Every cell of my body is dysregulating. Do you think that it's an appropriate emotional response? At least. So that is a state of dysregulation. That qualifies as an emotional response. You say, of course, you're shook. Your very being is shook. The entire physiology is dysregulated. Makes sense. Let's talk about it. It tells me how much you've been affected by it. Make sense? So they themselves, states of dysregulation and states of stress are emotional responses. What we have, we have over time tended to do is to we think that we can minimize it. Hmm? Can't, because it gives you important information, right? Now, it turns out that states of stress and dysregulation also contribute to what? The formation of primary emotions. Remember I said that all emotions are created through physiological changes in the brain on the body, right? Very often, states of dysregulation and stress, what? Contribute to the primary emotions. Panic. Where stress and dysregulation are heightened, mechanisms are heightened. Panic in just thinking about what would happen if I lose my house. You know? So some psychoanalysts have known for a while and they've written about it, negative emotions are created by dysregulating, created, generated in the physiology. 
by what? Dysregulating the physiology to a greater or lesser extent. Yeah. So they what? They can be emotional responses in themselves, right? Significant. And then what? They also contribute to what? The formation, like emptiness, you know, weakness. If you're starting to feel weakness, tremendous loss of energy because you've lost somebody, job, a community, you know. What, 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 how, is, how do you generate that in your body? You have to what, do what? Dysregulate biological mechanisms to feel that. It's not something, it's not a little simulation that you do in the brain, which you can also do, which is great, but very, in, initially, how do you generate that? You generate that by what? Reducing the function of biological mechan- the bio- of the biological organs and mechanisms of the body. So these states can be emotions in themselves or what? They can be contributing to the formation of primary <coughs> emotions and tertiary emotions. Yeah, this is what makes it very interesting, right? Now, if you don't have inner support and outer support, what happens? You're more likely to end up what? what? This is the link between emotional um, emotions and the psychophysiologic disorders. I just presented, um, last year, I presented at a conference on psychophysiologic disorders which is the, another name we are give, giving what? Psychosomatic disorders. Because psychosomatic disorders have come to mean what? It's all in your mind. It's not. It's in your body. And it's emotional. That's what a psychophysiological disorder is about. And so if you don't have, if you don't have enough inner support, outer support, what is likely to happen? Your body is going to get shut down it's going to go down into what? Extreme stress or dysregulation, and then what? Shut down. Hmm? Shut down. That's what's going to happen. So you can have these physical states of stress and dysregulation occurring in three situations. To, con- to create primary and tertiary emotions. As what? As legitimate what? Ex- emotional responses in themselves. The third thing is what? when you don't have enough emotional support, right? You get very dysregulated. And this part of that can be post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, post-traumatic stress disorder, post-traumatic stress symptoms are normal in the short run. In the long run, what? They are not. That means in the long run, there's not enough enough inner and outer support for you to have symptoms of post-traumatic stress. But for the first six months, Symptoms of post-traumatic stress are normal, right? According to the DSM-4, 5, yeah? After six months, they're what? Not normal, because you don't have enough inner support, outer support. That's why you're still there. So the same thing can be different at different things, okay? Let me just stop here. This can cause a little bit of confusion, right? And I'm not, I don't want to go any further than that theoretically. I will add more as we go along. I would rather clarify and then do a demo. Right? Because we need to also talk about how do you work with it a little bit before I do a demo. So 
some basic principles. So I'm going to throw out and then do a demo. Any questions at this point in time? Yeah, give them a mic. Hold on. Yeah, we will get to a break in a moment. Yeah. Where do you place uh, emotions that are defensive in nature and escape from another emotion? That would be, those are emotional defenses. Where do you, pla- do you place them in a, no, a legitimate emotion? Uh, no, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, are not, we are talking about generating emotions. We're not talking about whether they are, um, you know, like reaction formation or uh-huh. displacement, etc. We're not talking about. That interpretation we have to do over and about that. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're neutral now. I have a thought to share. Yeah. I found myself thinking about sensory motor emotions. Mm and the connection experienced in the womb, Mm -hmm. which is a physiological experience. Mm -hmm. And also when we were earlier talking about isolation, Mm -hmm. loneliness, Mm -hmm. that there's a primary experience of separation Mm -hmm. that's also a sensory motor, Mm -hmm. but it boy, does it lead to Mm -hmm. one and three. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I just wanted to... share my reflection. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I didn't go all the way through yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, it was a new thought to yeah. me. Yeah. In fact, the gentle thinking is that the, the earlier the difficult experience, the earlier experiences, and the, le, the more intense later experiences have a larger sensory motor component. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that's consistent. I understand that. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. The back, yeah. Right the back, the gentleman there. Mm-hmm. So what you've talked about is very pathology-oriented. Do you have an orientation towards wellness as well? No. (laughs) No, the thing is, um, you know, um, people come to us with problems, no? And they are dealing with negative experiences, so I was focused on that. But, you know, it's easier to create capacity for positive emotions than negative emotions. Because negative emotions, by their very nature, are dysregulating of the physiology and therefore threaten the organism's survival. Now, positive it doesn't mean that positive emotions are not uh, that easy because they, you need a lot of permission and all these insight and uh, you know, cultural perm- and familial and interpersonal permission for the you know, an understanding of positive emotions. Yeah? Absolutely. But tolerance, affect tolerance, is about what? Being able to tolerate the polarities. So, in fact, if you don't have the polarities, positive emotions at the same time, you grow them, the, that in, it, in itself increases the pathology. Right? So. Maybe if you have an orientation that only looks towards the pathology, though, you don't create a space for the positive to be cultivated. That is true. That is true. And that is why we have a whole field of, in, in psychology that's growing called the positive psychology. Right? Positive psychology. But here, you can use the same framework whether you're working with positive emotions or negative emotions. Yeah, so. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. 
couple of questions and we take a break. Then we'll talk about how to work with the body. You know? how, how do you, what, what some simple ways of opening the body up to access the emotions and to regulate the body at the same time. So we will look at that. Yeah, so. I'm thinking about the concept of resilience yeah. and um, how that relates to affective tolerance, mm-hmm. um, how, how easily one can become dysregulated, mm-hmm. um, and how to build resilience, Yeah, yeah. Um, particularly dur- yeah. when early experiences don't really yeah. foster that. Yeah. Very important question. We need to, when we're working with the body in relation to a psychological experience, also pay attention to enhancing the self-regulation of the body. This is going to be a very important part of the work that that I'm going to demonstrate. Because what we tend to do is that we take a psychological experience, go to the body, right? Or we open up the body, but we don't necessarily ensure that the body is then left in a better state of self-regulation and resilience than before, right? Let me, let me put it this way. When you're working with negative emotions, you leave it minimally dysregulated because if you remove all the dysregulation, out goes what? The emotion, right? So you have to find a way to feel the feeling, Right? in the physical body and at the same time make sure that the, the, the physical body is um, you know, organized into better shape so that the, the dysregulation that goes with that negative emotion is minimal. <laughs> That's what I would call it uh, resilience. Yeah? Okay. So it's not about completely eliminating dysregulation. It's about, can I go into dysregulation and come back? Can I go into the Tremendous dysregulation of a negative affect, and then what? Feel it fully without shutting down. Hmm? Whatever fully means. And then return to health. Hmm? That, that requires what? That, that the body is, knows how to regulate itself. Right? That, knows, that means that you, you're able to work with it, the person, that way. That means that the person is also has access to positive emotions. Right? Connecting to... It's all, come, it's all, it all comes together. Yeah. One more question there. There's another. Okay, here. Okay. Uh, Mike, 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 Mike. So we're taping this um, thing, and this thing will be available on the internet thing. So sometime, you know, we can download the audio files at some point. That's the idea. So, yeah. There's a phrase that that is used: um, uh, interpsychic kind of interpsychic relationship. Yeah. Uh, and it's thrown around. When, when I use that word, I have the sense that when I close my eyes, I have a sense of that other person in real time, real space, mm-hmm. like my father. Yeah. You know, I can mm-hmm. feel him, you know, and I know he's, and we have this sense of affinity. How do you bring that into your work? Now, I, I make it more concrete that your body, every cell of your body has the ability to perceive, receive, perceive, um, you know, and regulate the other body. It's through a process of somatic resonance, there's a lot of, not just when you're touching the person, like a mother's holding a child, but when you're sitting across from a person. And that is not very well used because in, in, in psychotherapy because the body is left out. 
not that it's not happening, it's happening. And this is one of the reasons a lot of people are getting burnt out. Right? In, you know, burnt out. They're doing trauma work, bringing a lot of stuff, and they're getting burnt out. Because the body is trying to understand and receive and influence the other body. That's part of who we are. Right? And... Um, and when you, do the, when you don't pay attention to that, you don't make good use of it. Right? It's also a way in which I know that there's sadness in your heart, not because I only see it on your face. Sometimes I don't. Right? That you're losing energy in some part of your body, where energy is not flowing into some part. This is how I, come, I can come to know. And, and with the same errors that I can make and perceive here, in a, it is error-prone, but then everything is error prone. My theories are often error prone when I apply them to clients. No? So that use of that I will actually demonstrate. And it's not so difficult because it's inherent, innate to you. Yeah. Okay. So what we will do is to take a break now. And then when we come back, I will talk a little bit about some basic principles and do a demo. Please hand over the sheets um, wherever you're supposed to put them on the table there. So I'm going to quickly go through them and um, and then uh, choose somebody to work with. Yeah, so, okay. <clears throat> um, okay, let's say it's twenty twenty three. Shall we say um, quarter to about twenty minutes? Twenty twenty two minutes or so. So we come back at quarter to twelve. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.